and welcome to the 41st blockbuster episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's reprinting Modern Masters 2015 next January because, you know, hey, profits. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Mumpin, and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with everyone. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, what's on the agenda this week? James, this week we've got a show in four parts. Segment one is our top movers, where we will look at the cards that have seen the largest changes in price over the last week. Segment two is our cards to watch, where we'll talk about cards that we think may see rises in price. Segment three is our metagame week in review. This week we'll be looking at Star, Star City Games Columbus Modern Open. And segment four is our topic of the week. This week we thought we'd pick up on a listener topic and we'll be discussing Puka Trade a little bit. Some helpful tips and tricks to people newer to the platform and maybe we'll touch on uh, how things have been looking lately. So we will jump right in on segment one, our top movers. Uh, our first card of the week is Teferi's Puzzle Box. We are looking at foil 7th edition copies. Started the week in the low 60s, uh, I'm sorry, started the week in the low to mid 40s and is now in the low 60s. Um, this is foil 7th edition, so supply is uh, extremely limited. One or two copies selling can move the numbers. So I don't know how reliable this new price is going to be, um, and it will probably take some time for us to find out anyways. Yeah, I mean, seventh foils have always been a thing. Um, foil collectors tend to migrate towards trying to get a set of this stuff together. Um, the deal there was that the set was white border, but the foils were black border, um, and a lot of them look pretty nice. Uh, Teferi's Puzzle Box is not like a huge demand card, but it's just one of these situations where enough supply had drained out of the marketplace that people could start setting new price plateaus and testing the waters for people to buy in. Um if you've got them and you can get anywhere near 50 or 60 bucks, feel free to exit. Um, otherwise, it's definitely not the kind of card you want to be picking up for further gains. Yeah, the, it moved a good bit, what was it, two years ago when Nekasar came out. But, uh, you know, at this point, we're long past that as being a motivating factor. I mean, there's probably lingering demand in the EDH crowd. But, um, you know, as Commander goes on, people are, and new Commander products come out, people are typically more excited about building around new commanders it's really uh you know new player you have to have player growth in general in magic which we're pretty dubious about at this point to drive demand on um staples for decks that people a lot of people that are interested already have put together um you really need that fresh blood to drive additional demand on cards like uh that are related to decks like nekasar yep and do you want to take the next card so Mossfire Valley, this is the filter land out of Odyssey that's now 15 years old. The foils moved from about $10 to about 14 this week, about a 40% gain. Um, this is just another situation where a 15-year-old foil rare, um, the supply drained out of uh, online inventory, certainly sees you know occasional casual play and play in EDH green-red decks um, where you often need 10 or 15 dual lands to round things out. Um, again, not the kind of card you want to be chasing for further gains, but uh, I'm not tremendously surprised to see it make take a modest uptick in the face of dramatically lowered supply. Yeah, I, I can't figure out what else this could possibly be, given that it's uh, strictly from Odyssey. There, It's not legal in Modern or anything. Um, we know Legacy's not really pushing it, and I, I don't even know... I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea where this would come from. So just, yeah, supply attrition, I guess. I I almost have to wonder if maybe the cheap, maybe the cheapest copy wasn't even bought. It just got delisted or something like that. And by default, the average price rose. Yeah, entirely possible. Um, next on our list is Koth of the Hammer, the guy whose name is his own acronym from Scars of Mirrodin. Uh, we're not talking about foil copies this time. 
Started the week uh, low eight dollars, uh, is in the mid twelve right now for a good four dollar gain. Koth, uh, the Koth's price increase comes from the recent success of Scred Red at the Grand Prix. Uh, was it not Columbus? I don't know some GP recently. Um, and and Koth was a, a pretty major component of Scred Red. Um, gives uh, I believe we saw the finals one with the Scred player ultimating Koth and pinging his opponent down with the mountain. So um, certainly a splashy finish for the card and also attractive from a price perspective because there are so few cards in the deck that are worth much money um, or could really be worth much. I should take that back. So few cards in the deck that could be expensive that aren't Koth was uh, was bound to start moving. Yeah, I mean, because they run four copies of Koth and just one Chandra Torch of Defiance, um, and Koth, uh, most recent printing was uh, a while back in a dual deck. Um, there's, you know, not much holding the card back from making some gains. Yep. Uh, why don't you give us our last one this week? Yeah, it's been a pretty quiet week overall. We have Stonehoof Chieftain, one of the Commander 2016 cards that's got some of the kind of go wide green players excited. Uh, moving from just a dollar thirty to two ten, so it's only an eighty cent change, despite being sixty one percent. This is just you know people trying to pick up their copies for decks that they're excited to start building. Um, not really anything much to see there. No, no, you tend to see a lot of prices uh, float um, up and down during the first week or so of a new product like this being released. We see it with um, conspiracy and that type of thing as well. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the prices are moving that dramatically. It's just kind of everything trying to figure out where it's going. So if you watch the the price shift pages, um, like we have out on MTG price, you'll see uh, every time a set comes out, they're kind of all over the place for a week or two. Okay. Now let's move on to segment two, our, uh, our cards to watch your, your name's first on the list. So why don't you tell us what we're looking at this week? Well, I was surprised to find that some of the masterpiece um, inventions from Kaladesh um, are actually demonstrating relatively low supply at a point where um, I would have expected us to be at peak supply. Um, And specifically, you know, I've been looking forward to some of the cards that are used in modern, often as four ofs, um, to, you know, settle in price so I could figure out if I wanted to pick an entry point and try to get in on a few. Um, one of the cards that I've already picked up a couple of that I probably will get some more of now that inventory is where it's at is Mox Opal. Um, the Mox Opal inventions, there's only uh, something like 60 uh, results on TCG near Mint, um, most of them in the 95 to 100 range for the first 10 copies or so, I guess. And then beyond that, it starts to rise pretty dramatically up towards 120. Um, if you can get these out of somebody on Facebook or Twitter, um, or somebody opens one at a draft at your local LGS, and you can get your hands on it for, you know, 90 in trade or equivalent, and I think you're going to have an opportunity, probably a year or two down the road, to exit in the 130 to 140 range, um, just on the basis that Affinity is not the boogeyman, boogeyman of modern anymore. Um, other decks like Death Shadow and Infect and Dredge have kind of taken that, you know, should we ban it kind of title. And so I, I think it's entirely possible that um, Mox, Opal, and the rest of the Affinity uh, shell gets a pass um, from banning threats uh, over the next few years, which means that um, Mox Opal's usefulness uh, in Affinity and beyond makes it a pretty attractive target if you're looking at the inventions at all. Sure. I, I think um, I think your strategy of trying to find the inventions that are likely to be played as play sets is, uh, is spot on. And we, we may see more of a push towards these uh, with more inventions coming in um, Aether Revolt. You know, if we see Arcbound Ravager, uh, maybe one or two other affinity cards, given that the whole deck is made of artifacts, people may go, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to do the whole set now, right? Like, you know, I can do almost the entire deck and inventions, just give them more orthopter and they're good to go. So I think it's, I think it's a, at 90 bucks, that is definitely appealing. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think your point is dead on. Like the, if they can get steel overseer and ravager and orthopter and mox opal, um, you know, somebody, some small subset of affinity players are going to find that very appealing. I, I will say, I don't actually think they'll do ornithopter, although I applaud them if they do. 
I don't know. I, I think it's a, a totally reasonable target. I mean, I heard you mention it on your other podcast this week, um, and it made sense to me. I mean, they can afford to throw one or two throwaways in there, and they in, instead of them being casual cards, they can be like all-time classics with amazing art. And uh, I think that that would get. I don't think anybody's going to complain about that, really. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's a terrible idea for exactly the reasons you know you mentioned. We talked about before is there's in these types of products. There's always one or two that are low value. Uh, famously, there was Siobhan Gorge in from the vault from the vault realms, right? There's like a card or two like that in all these products, and uh, Ornithopter is a pretty classic iconic artifact made even more perfect by the fact that one of the flavor texts is like regardless of the time period and plane every civilization invents the ornithopter so it would just be so perfect to then see it on kaladesh yep and i I can buy into all of that it wouldn't surprise me a bit i i would also enjoy it from the uh wailing that i would see on my twitter feed every time some poor schmuck opened an invention and it turned out it was an ornithopter and it was worth nine dollars <laughs> i'd rather have ornithopters than sculpting steels in in the long run i think uh, i think they're i think they're probably more interesting to the player base at large you know but right. in, um, in frontier one of the really popular decks right now is the one that's using shrapnel blast and soul artifacts um with ornithopters and rhino yeah, <laughs> yeah, and see, <laughs> uh, All right. Uh, my first card for the week is uh, Pillar of the Perrins. Uh, this is a land all the way back from Dissension that taps for any color of mana, uh, but you can only use that mana on multicolored spells. Um, right now, prices are in the four low four dollar range. Uh, inventory on this is is quite low across the internet. There is not one particular event that I find to be especially driving here. Um, I, the new commander sets being very heavy multicolor certainly helps the commanders are, but the cards themselves not necessarily. So there's some impetus there, but that's not it. It's just that uh, the car has, card gained some popularity back um, in July of this year, kind of picked up from three to, to four supply is still very low it's a very powerful card you know it's a land that comes in the play untapped and taps for any color of mana um with no drawback or with no penalty whatsoever so long as you're casting multicolor cards so um you know it's as long as you dodge reprints on this i think it's pretty inevitable that this will get close to uh to double digits yeah and i think the reprint threat you're looking for there is a hint that we're getting a multicolored set um a shards of Alara block type block or a cons type block, which we're probably not due for for another couple of years now, um, would be the place where they might eventually go. Okay, it's been you know fifteen years since the last time we printed this. Let's throw it in so that people can assemble their mana properly in this set. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I think that's a solid pick. I mean, I was I was interested to see that the foils on this were down to like two or three copies on TCG, and there was something like less than twenty results for the non foils. Um, pretty tightly clustered in the like four to six dollar range, but there's copies available as low as three fifty. So if you can snap these out of somebody's binder where they've been rotting for ages, um, I think that could be a pretty solid trade. Um, uh, yeah, I don't expect them to disappear overnight. You know, I don't think anyone's going to run out and and clear clear out the internet of these because of some 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 event that occurs in the next week or two or whatever you know it's just more like a, this card is is just useful it's going to continue to be useful and somebody might eventually figure something out in modern that really puts some additional strain on that supply well i mean it's probably worth pointing out that some of the pressure will will upward pressure will come from the fact that edh and commander players now have more um, impetus than ever to be uh, building three and four color decks right um, yeah, with the four yeah. color uh, commanders, yeah, this this kind of card becomes all the more uh, interesting if they can put together a a deck full of gold spells. Um, you know, <laughs> run four of the five commands or something and just go buck wild. Um, you can do all sorts of crazy stuff. Ah, uh, yep, yep. Um, all right, so my next pick is Jace Friend's Prodigy. Um, out of Origins, uh, we've talked about it a few times in the past, and it's really getting down to that tempting zone. And um, there's plenty of inventory out there, so there's no rush. But um, and you can feel free to kind of kick back on this and wait to see how much lower it can go. But we're talking about a card that used to be eighty dollars in standard, down, now being down in the sixteen to seventeen dollar range. And the 
don't get it twisted. This is an extremely powerful planeswalker, and it's being um, underestimated in modern because the right shell isn't there for it, and the format's extremely fast right now. Um, if a series of bannings takes place to shake modern up, and they target things like Simeon Spirit Guide, um, or pieces from Infect, or wh- wherever they go with that over the next year, year and a half, in an attempt to open up the format and slow it down a bit, um, Jacerin's Prodigy could become a thing. Um, if it's a thing, it's probably a four of, and um, some kind of reanimation strategy might make its way to the forefront based on printings of new cards. Um, who knows? But the card is good in casual, it's good in cube, it's good in EDH, it's good in uh, legacy and vintage, um, and if it finds that home one day in modern, then it could easily top 30 again, and you could be looking at 60 or 70% gains if you can pick them up in the 16 ish kind of range i'm really surprised i should say surprised i did not realize this had sunk as uh, low as it did i remember we had been you and i and other people as well had been talking about trying to watch this in the 20 to 25 region and now suddenly it's you know 17 18 um that's interesting i feel like this has got to be hitting the floor sooner rather well i shouldn't say sooner rather than later but we got to be getting close yeah, I mean, this this anything under fifteen that starts. To, you're talking about a card that is, you know, down below where Koth just got to. I mean, that's crazy. Keep in mind that this was, the, you know, the last core set. It's a summer set, similar to Eldritch Moon. So the the supply profile should, in in theory, be lower than much lower than something like Kaladesh. Um, it's already, uh, you know, a year and a half old now, and uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons for people to pick these up. Uh, along the way and it's really hard to reprint flip cards so uh, pretty comfortable getting in for say 10 or 20 copies in the near future um, you know not all at once but you know working my way down the ramp if it's going to fall a couple more dollars I'll certainly look for some deals come the holiday season and if foils are available um, uh, you know under 40 or so then all the, all the better yeah I'm, I'm on board with that one uh, my my other card this week is um, Venser, the Sojourner. Uh, looking at the Scars of Mirrodin copies, and um, this is the blue-white Planeswalker that is uh, has long been a fan favorite because of uh, its abilities. Mostly, it's plus, which uh, flickers a permanent you control. Although I don't know, I don't know if it's flicker, right? Like it's, I think flicker has to come back into play in the same turn. So bounces well, it's, it's at the end blinks? of the next end step so uh, it's a blink i don't there's like a there's like a flicker i think is like restoration angel where it comes back right away and blink as it comes back end of turn whatever it doesn't really matter it removes a permanent you control from play and then returns it um so it, abusing under the battlefield effects has always been useful and valuable um the printing of panharmonicon has only seen to uh, encourage players to push that even harder than they have in uh, in EDH, which or it's already a strong strategy. And now we see Deep, Lo- Deep Glow Skate getting printed in Commander 16, which doubles counters on all permanents in play, uh, or any permanent you all, any number of permanents you want when it comes into play, um, which also works fantastically with Venser. Uh, so there's just a lot of setup getting printed for him. Um, and with the new color, the new commander set also opening up a lot of much more, uh, a lot of decks with more colors um, in the command zone, he gets easier and easier to cast. So um, he's been, you know, sneaking up in price slowly for a while now. He's in the 10, 10 to $11 range. Uh, and I think he's going to keep ticking up until we see a reprint, which uh, could easily be another two or three years. Yeah. And, and and who knows if you ever I mean even if they were go back to this character and if I'm not mistaken isn't Vencer dead in the storyline? Yep, he uh, did die. Yeah, I mean if he's dead, I can't see them going back to this card ever. Um, I mean maybe in a Modern Masters product. Um, yeah, they always stick one wonky planeswalker in Modern Masters. It feels like, but yeah. I mean there's a lot of choices. Yeah, I mean this the, the interestingly this was in a dual deck with Koth, um, and so they're both hampered a little bit by their dual deck printings. But there's actually only like. 20 results for the dual deck printing of Venser. 
um, and maybe 70 or 80 for the Scars of Mirrodin copies. Um, doesn't really take too much too long before the $10 copies uh, disappear and you're left with the $14 to $15 copies. So, and, and you're right, there's all sorts of interesting new interactions in Commander that will be discovered along the way. And um, that, you know, those people are only going to bleed one or two copies out uh, of the market when they take a swipe. But give it a year or two years, you could easily see the gains you're predicting. Yeah, yeah, it's not intended to be a tomorrow card. It's just kind of a hangout and find that it's a bunch more dollars more few months down the road several months some number of months uh you got one more for us james yeah there's a there's a foil i've got my eye on and i'm trying to figure out how 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 deeply i want to go on this monastery mentor foils are at relatively low supply in and around the 40 dollar range um this could easily be a 60 or 80 dollar foil down the road um monastery mentor is a very busted card i mean it's a one card win condition in vintage um, has seen play in Legacy and in Modern. Um, it's never really set up shop uh, inside a compelling Tier 1 or Tier 2 shell in Modern. But again, like Jay's Friends Prodigy, we might only be a few um, key uh, cards away from a shell coming coalescing around this kind of a card. Um, the power level is certainly there. The question about this card is always, you know, can you protect it? In, in a world of... Um, dismembers and lightning bolts and path to exiles can you justify a three casting cost creature um that you have to play a bunch of spells into to set off uh in a chain reaction and and like young pyromancer um it has struggled um because of that the but because it it you know the 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 critical mass may be achieved at some point and inventory is relatively low it was from fate reforged and not the fall set um there's a lot of decent reasons for the long-term profile on on this as a mythic rare as opposed to a rare, in which case I would be significantly less interested. But as a mythic, the foils look like they could definitely uh, hit a higher plateau down the road. Yeah, I have liked Monastery Mentor since it was spoiled. Um, did not quite work out that well later on. Uh, during standard, it did not do as well as I thought, but it is still very, very good. Uh, so I am, I'm on board with, with, with expecting to see this at some point, um, in modern, uh, just because, of the, the power level is so intense. Um, and if we see changes to that format where they kind of pull back a little bit on the speed, um, it may, may have a chance to really shine. Yeah. And I mean, non-foils are available at $8. I mean, pretty hard to go wrong at eight dollars and this i can't see this getting reprinted until well down the road give it two three maybe even four years um there's just no impetus at this point nobody's clamoring for the reprint and there's plenty about 150 results on tcg so i mean foils non-foils they both look good to me yep i'm with you there okay Let's uh, let's move on to segment three, our metagame week in review. Uh, we're looking at Star City's uh, modern open in Columbus this past weekend. I think the uh, most inter most surprising, most interesting thing that come out of this event was uh, not Tom Ross's victory, but the fact that he won it with Green White Tron. Uh, that's a deck that I am guessing most of you had not seen prior to this weekend. I'm not sure it really existed prior to this weekend. Um, this is the traditional Tron build, uh, but they Tom chose to issue red instead for green, adding some, uh, I'm sorry, not green, uh, white, um, adding some Path to Exile action uh, and some a little bit of sideboard. Uh, not really getting that much out of the white, just I guess didn't really find any use for uh, Pyroclasm. Um, yes, we also, go ahead. You got two rest in peace in the sideboard, three blessed alliance, um, and as you said, three path to exile in the main. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I assume that it's just that Pyroclasm hasn't been good lately, and the rest in peace um, and, and the blessed alliance are very good against uh, other decks that are popular right now. Yeah, you really want your kill to be instant speed with how fast the format's rolling. Yeah. Um, uh, when I look at this, uh, the, the the only card on here that really jumps out at me is Razor Verge Thicket. Uh, what did you think? I mean, we've got two uh, World Breaker and two Ulamog, um, giving both of those cards a, a potential home. Uh, if this deck keeps rolling and people shift uh, their 
their construction methods for the for their Tron builds over in this direction. Two copies of Ugin the Spirit Dragon as well, and the four the full four of Karn Liberated, um, Worldbreaker and Ulamog um, as uh, well Ulamog in particular as a fall set. Uh, mythic is going to have a little bit more price drag on it than say Worldbreaker out of Oath um, but both are cards that I've accumulated copies of along the way uh, in the hopes that they will one day be a stalwart four of in the format yeah I mean I, I, I think that both of them have room to grow I guess given how much more recent they are uh, you know I look at Razor Verge Thick and go okay well that's that scar is mirrored and that's old. There's no reprinting. Blackleaf Cliffs is like 20 bucks. Copperline Gorge is even Copperline Gorge is over $10 now because of dredge. So if this version of Tron picks up any steam at all, I can see Razor Verge Thicket moving. Yeah, and I mean the the inventory in Razor Verge Thicket isn't super deep. Um and it could easily turn from a $7 card into a $12 to $15 card um if enough people pick up the deck. Yeah, I guess it's seven bucks now, isn't it? It's a little more than I was remembering it being. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice that there is a uh, a Madcap deck in twenty fifth place? Yeah, uh, it was on camera at one point, uh, and I'm certainly happy to see that combo rolling since I picked up some foils relatively early. Um, so for anybody who's missed this, the whole idea here is that Madcap Experiment is a sorcery for three and a red. You reveal cards from the top of your library until you find an artifact card, which you then get to put on the battlefield for free, but you lose uh, or you take damage equal to the number of cards that you had to reveal to find it. So if you only have the one artifact that you're looking for, you might end up flipping 20 or 30 cards off your deck before you hit it, and then you just kill yourself. So the way to get around that is you run a couple of copies of Platinum and Pyreon, which is the uh, Mirrodin block, 8-8 uh, eight, eight for 8 uh, with the special ability your life total cannot change so you put it into play then you're supposed to take the damage but it negates the damage and so you get a free 8-8 eight, eight for 4 mana um, the rest of the deck was made up of uh, a kind of a blue-red control shell so 4 Snapcaster Mage 2 Vendillion Click 4 Blood Moon um, 2 Cryptic Command so more attraction on Cryptic Command a card that we called out as potential pick when it was at $16 and showing some upward price movement and then a bunch of like counter spells and burn spells and card selection spells like Serum Visions and Spell Snare and Lightning Bolt and the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's without the Madcap combo, it's I don't want to call it boring, but it doesn't do anything that we haven't seen before. Uh, it's just in blue red with with uh, Madcap Experiment shoved into it, but an interesting take nonetheless. And I'll be curious to see if it gains traction over the coming weeks. It's interesting because it's 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 kind of like the poor man Splinter Twin, right? This is like a very similar shell to what Splinter Twin uh, would have run uh, in their non-combo slots. <clears throat> I also thought it was interesting that uh, there's three Spire Bluff Canal, um, the rare from Kaladesh, the blue red uh, comes into play untapped if it's if you've got two or few other lands and only two Steam Vents. So I mean. If Steam Vents is being outstripped by Spire Bluff Canal, um, I wouldn't hold your breath for the Shocklands to gain a lot of traction anytime soon. No, I uh, yeah, I really wanted to be able to buy the Blue Red Fastland, but I don't think the door was ever open on that one. Um, you know, we know that it will be good. I just not sure the price is ever low enough. Uh, I also noticed uh, we saw two Bant Aldrazi lists in the top eight. Um, and an Aldrazi Tron in 16th place. So uh, Aldrazi still still well represented here in the format. Uh, we saw Amulet Titan showing up again, um, having replaced uh, Summer Bloom with Sakura Tribe Scout, which is the creature that taps to put extra lands in the play. Uh, and even some Mono White Martyr popped up. Um, so a pretty good smattering of decks, especially once you get outside of the top eight, it opens up. Yeah, I mean, people complain about modern being a like three deck format or whatever, and there, there's no debating that uh, Infect and and Death Shadow Aggro and Dredge, I suppose, are are blisteringly fast and will put away anybody who dirtles around too much. But you know, people are still brewing like crazy. We're seeing new decks come out of the woodwork every month. It's by no means can you call this a dead or or fully stale format. I mean, even if it's just people, um, you know. Uh, living in denial of, of what the best decks really are um, and forcing uh, new decks to, at the tables that we continuously see interesting brews like the Scred Red from a couple weeks ago um, get into the top eight. So, 
you know, anything's possible in this format. Um, I thought the uh, Eldrazi deck that finished in 16th, Eldrazi Tron, was worth uh, paying a little bit more attention to um, because it's very different than a lot of the other Eldrazi builds that we've seen. Um, I guess the first point is that, you know, this is like the fourth or fifth uh, Eldrazi deck to top 16 an event since the banning of Eye of Ugin. <laughs> So, is it even it feels like it's even more than that like we've seen green red we've seen black white frank lapore um drove that uh home pretty hard when i think ayavugan was still uh allowed and it's made some showings since then i run eldrazi in taxes in modern right now which is like death and taxes running some eldrazi um, yeah yeah and uh, this eldrazi tron build is basically using the tron lands um and a bunch of uh uh bigger uh, Eldrazi up the up the scale. So we've got a worm coil engine in this build, and then a conduit of ruin. That's the five five for six that lets you go pull another seven uh, casting cost creature um, out of your deck and put it on top. The first creature you cast each turn then costs two less. It's also running four Endbringer, which is an Eldrazi we've really only seen in uh, Legacy and Vintage. This is the five five for five and a colorless that you untap during each other player's end, uh, untap step. And that was the clause that got me to buy in on some foils around $1.50 or something, um, despite there being a uh, promo version as well, um, on the basis that uh, 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 the card is going to find homes in EDH decks for years to come and is very unlikely to be reprinted anytime soon. Um, it has three abilities, deal taps to deal damage to a creature or player. For a colorless and a tap, you get to make a uh, target creature not attack or block this turn. And then for two and a tap, you draw a card. So it's just like a value engine extraordinaire. And if you've got the right lands in play, at le including at least one Eldrazi Temple or some of your Urza's lands, you're basically getting to drop this thing on like turn three or four, um, which can be completely ridiculous. Um, I also like the fact that um, on top of uh, the aforementioned creatures, you also have your Matter Reshapers, Reality Smashers, and Thought Not Seers that you would normally expect. And again, in a totally different deck shell, to Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger, um, in giving me uh, additional hopes for that card in the future. Now, to hold everybody else back, they were running the four Chalice of the Void that was very popular when Eye of Ugin was still legal so that you can shut down all the one casting cost spells. Um, and uh, running a copy of All is Dust, um, which, because it's a tribal sorcery, so it counts as an Eldrazi, you can actually cast it for like five or six if you've got an Eldrazi temple or two in play um, and get rid of everybody else's uh, permanence except yours since everything in your deck is colorless, and that's just disgusting. Yeah, turning that into a five-mana Plague Wind is pretty nasty. <laughs> I uh, I also find it amusing to see this... this I, It's not recent, but this shift to just four main deck chalices and all of these strategies that are like, eh, my strategy doesn't have a lot of one-drop, so you know what? Nobody's is going to. And it's just like, well, all right, I guess that's one way to, to get it done. Because I would imagine there are certain games where... Um, it's probably like Blood Moon where you cast that on turn two and the, your opponent's just staring at their handful of wands and it's like, crud. <laughs> yeah. And then they've got and then they've got to go into the board and put a bunch of anti-artifact stuff in there knowing full well that the rest of your colorless Eldrazi aren't artifact creatures. Yeah, and it has to be artifact hate that doesn't cost one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, overall, you know, I we're seeing um, Dredge uh, still succeed. Um, in fact, still pretty popular. Uh, I, I kind of am thinking, well, I, I think dredge might get hit, but I'm not sure. It doesn't seem like we're quite there yet. It's still pretty, I mean, this event and the past couple events have been pretty robust. I mean, dredge is pretty clearly tier one, but I don't know if, if we're quite at the point where wizards is going to start looking at it yet. I don't know. What do you think? I, I, I think they're looking at it. Um, but I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that much of anything gets banned yet. I mean, I think the argument, the strongest argument I can think of for bannings in modern any time in the next year is shake things up. That's all. Um, I don't. Th there's just nothing that's oppressive enough yet. I mean, there, there's no infect in the top eight this week. We had green white Tron, a dredge, and there was a couple more dredge decks in the top sixteen, but um, it didn't dominate. Uh, Affinity 
was in third. Grixis Delver in fourth, which is a nice showing for that deck. It pops up every every now and again. Uh, a, a showing for Burn, which is and and a Jun deck in eighth place. And then sixth and seventh were the other Eldrazi deck that's more popular, the Bant Eldrazi build, um, which certainly underscores the potential for the picks we've been making all year for the foil Eldrazi because this one was running Draners of Hope, Eldrazi Displacer, Sky Spawner, Matter Reshaper, Reality Smasher, and Thought Not. Um, Definitely the, the common theme across the different shells that run the Eldrazi is that the Reality Smashers and the Thought Knots are indisputably um, the four ofs you can rely on to show up. Um, and then whether or not there are blue ones or white ones or, you know, Sky Spawners or, or Draners depends on the build. Um, but if you don't have Foil Reality, reality Smashers or Thought Knots from when they were at a, a, a local low, then you almost certainly missed out. Yeah, has he has thought not moved that much so far? I mean, I I know that I've liked it for the longest time, but I haven't actually checked the price on that recently. Let's see, foil thought not here. It looks like it's pretty steady so far, but um, I mean, I, I'm in the same boat as you that this is eventually going to turn turn north. Well, this was this was Cliff's pick last week was eighteen dollar foil thought not seers predicting that they would yeah. get to 30 and i said yeah i mean they i liked it a lot more at 10 to 12 um but at 18 it probably still has room to go i mean it's going to be a card that's going to be on the table and getting played for a long time in a couple of different formats and uh, i think it's i think that those those cards have been played enough now and have done enough on camera that they are now part of the kind of the mystique of magic they're part iconic cards um, an iconic tribe and a series of cards that people are not going to forget anytime soon. And that's a good place to have your money. I agree. This was never 10 to $12 foils. Yep. 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 No, 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 yep. no. Uh, let let no me way. tell you the, let me tell you the moment where I was picking those up when they banned Ayavugan. everything dropped like Arse. a stone because it Arse. wasn't really getting played in standard. And the, everybody was scared crapless when they, figured out that it was getting banned in modern and all of the related foils dropped down to the floor i so i am not telling you that you did not buy it for those prices but none of the tracking tools indicate that it was ever that cheap so i mean like if you caught some guy at the store who was really pissed and wanted to sell his deck you could grab it but like i don't think you could ever go on tcg player and buy them at that price no, I mean all all of my almost all of my purchases are from TCG Player and or eBay, um, and I I could have to go back and find the exact date. But th- there was a, there was moments of panic. There was you know a lot of people thought that Eldrazi decks were dead and modern. They said that without Ayavugan, the decks weren't going to be fast enough and they were going to be tier three or four. And it took about three months before people the results started to you know swarm back in and people realized that it was still kind of top thirty two ing top sixteen ing. And then a couple of top eights popped up. And then we noticed that there was, you know, two or three or four different builds. And, you know, then it was like, well, you know, it's a gimmicky deck. It probably won't be around in six months. And then here we are like a year later and we're getting like two different flavors of it. <laughs> All right. Um, All right. So I, I, I'm going to take a, a short uh, uh, detour here. When talking about card prices, uh, I think that it's fair to say that if the price you're referencing, and this is not just this is not just you, this is everybody. If the price you're referencing doesn't show up in tracking, then the card was never really that price. Like one guy who listed dwar- a dwarven recruiter foil for three dollars instead of the fifteen every other car- every other copy on TCG Player, like that didn't mean the card was three dollars. It means somebody just listed it way too cheap. And like you know, I don't see if the card's not if the price graph isn't moving, if it's not showing that dip, then it's like yeah, people got lucky and found cheap copies. But like you can't really say that the market price of the card changed to that value. I mean, even on MGG price uh, in June of 2016, it shows foil thought not seers down at 16, which means that that that's coming from the vendor, the retailers that uh, tier two retailers that are um, fill up our vendor program. Um, you know, the Troll and Toad, Strike Zones, um, Abu Games, Cool Stuff, these kind of guys. And they tend to be a little higher than what you're going to find TCG Low and certainly higher than you're going to find on Facebook and or Twitter, right? So I think we can agree that if a card is MTG price, uh, fair trade value of $16, then you can probably get it for 13 or 14 right? Yeah, that was... 
I guess that was a day. It was June 7th. It was one, one exact day. That was but even six, but even just before that, right? Like if you you can look from June all the way back to late April, it's a pretty flat line at $18, which means you could get 14 or $15 copies. Sure, sure. I, I, I agree with you on that one. Just, you know, it's not 10 to 12. Well, I mean, any time TCG low is at 15, there's going to be some guy on Twitter, Facebook, or a momentary... Uh, sale on on ebay that's gonna be a couple bucks less right yeah 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 yeah. i'm not disagreeing with that i guess i'm always concerned and again this is not this is not just you and this is all of us i'm always concerned that sometimes we we manage to score decent prices on cards and then we talk about it and our listeners are like where the hell are these guys finding these cards for these numbers like you know of course this card was profitable he paid half of what the market the market rate was so um I, I don't want i don't want people to feel bad like man like either they're lying or they've got some connections or something like that like you know it's only helpful to talk about these numbers in the context that other people yeah could what's achievable pay that for them. what's achievable i i understand so there's a couple of things there one is that sometimes by the time people go looking for cards that we talk about or somebody else talks about or everybody's talking about in a given week by the time you listen to the podcast and go look for them other people have gotten there before you and the price has changed Oh, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Th- that happens all the time. Um, the other thing that, that can happen is that, um, you know, your your methodology for looking for cards is just not great. I mean, maybe you don't have a credit card yet. You're a 16-year-old with one LGS in your local town, and they're like Star, Star City Games pricing plus 10%, um, in which case you're going to have a lot of trouble finding the kind of pricing that I'm, I, I pull together on most of my specs where, you know, I've got tabs open in my browser all day that are tracking MTG price, that are tracking TCG player, that are tracking eBay opportunities. I'm looking at auctions. I'm looking at buy it now. I'm looking at people I have sources for overseas in Japan. I'm looking at the two major vendors over there. Um, I'm looking at mtgcardmarket.eu. I'm in touch with the four or five online vendors in Canada that aren't really uh, well known in the US. I mean, uh, those of us that are heavy into speculation, we do our research. Um, so uh, is is a result um, repeatable? Sometimes not. But uh, before you know that for sure, make sure that you're you're poking around and lifting up all the rocks to make sure that you're finding what you're looking for. Sure. All right. That's, that's fair. That's fair. All right. Um, so uh, you said a reader wrote in and said they wanted to talk uh, us to – do a little bit of an update on Puka Trade, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Somebody um, un, uh, unsolicited, we didn't even ask for suggestions. So it just said, hey, you know, can you guys talk about Puka Trade? So it's been kind of a slow week. I thought we could we could cover a few things. I know, you know, if you've been listening since the, the cast started, uh, which has now been about 42-ish weeks, um, you know, you definitely would have heard us go through this before, but, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a little newer or you weren't around right during Puka's rise, like two or three years ago, um, you might've missed a lot of that content. Yeah. So let me see if I can take this from the top. Uh, Puka trade, uh, is a platform that allows you to send cards out and get placeholder points that you then in theory use as bait for people to send you cards that are on your want list. Um, the site was heavily criticized by myself and many other critics. Um, I wrote a huge article with uh, a partner that was like 5,000 words long or something um, earlier this summer where we broke down the economics behind the platform. And the chief concern that we had was that they were generating points um, faster than they were being drained out of the system. And what that meant was that the system was trapped in an inflationary spiral where the points, which are supposed to be placeholders for the U.S. dollar, um, were, were basically being devalued on an ongoing basis to the point where people were trying to turn points into cash were being forced to basically um, give up half the value. So if they sent out $100 worth of cards, they might be able to sell the associated points for 50 bucks. Um, that's clearly not a position that the site wants to be in because if that spiral downward spiral continues between Puka points and the U.S. dollar, then it gets to the point where you know the value of points is just so worthless that nobody would want to participate. One of the ways that we identified that this could be solved would be to introduce methods for uh, those points to be bled out. Um, and what that means is that the, the system needed mechanisms by which people could spend points on things other than cards. Um, a number of ideas were tabled, both in the article that I wrote and then in the suggestions that were gathered from the community. And Pukatrade went ahead over the last few months and implemented several of the best ideas. Um, uh, 
the timing of the user question is actually pretty good because um, uh, Eric Freytag, the CEO of Puka Trade, just put out a new article yesterday that broke down some of the progress that they've made. So um, let me try to take that from uh, take some of the the most uh, interesting points from what what he posted. Um, sure. The uh, the most important part is that they are now at a position where there is a month-over-month month net reduction in Puka points, which is, means that Puka points are being drained out of the system faster than they are being added. Um, important to point out that the way that points have mostly been added has been that every new user that signs up got a free $5 worth of points. The problem with that is that you're, ent- you're adding points into an economy without value being transferred. And there was also situations where they were paying writers and and uh, other people that were associated with the project in points. Um, uh, there was uh, some kerfuffle about some YouTubers getting points in exchange for talking about the the platform on their on their uh, channels. Um, and that's just not a situation you want to be in. You you don't want to be creating points and throwing them into the economy without value being exchanged because it devalues everybody else's points. So what they did is they added a bunch of things. One of the things they added was contests. So they just basically started doing weekly contests where they would put a cool card like a volcanic island or something up. um, And you could buy entry fees for that contest one at a time by giving up a set number of points. And amazingly, they've actually managed to drain $30,000 worth of points out of the system um, through that method over over the last uh, several weeks. I don't know why people want to participate in, in lotteries. I mean, I, it, it reeks of desperation and frustration with the platform that people are willing to throw their points away that way, um, given that it is still possible to get cards to the system. Um, but, you know, whatever works from my perspective. The other thing they've been doing is uh, they introduced the Puka Shield program, which basically ensures the cards that you send out. And if there's a problem, then you don't have to deal with the mail system. They just basically give you back your points. And the other, uh, the person on the other end um, gets their points back as well. So if I was supposed to send out a $100 card and it never got there, then the person whose points I was supposed to get... Um, keeps their points, and then I get the points anyway. The problem with that is that if the um, percentage, if they set the percentage at the wrong level, and I think it's at, you know, two and a half or three percent or something um, of the value of the package, uh, if they set it at the wrong level, then you can actually end up adding more points in that method than you subtract, um, because uh, you've got to pay out all these insurance claims. Now, uh, as it so happens, it looks like it's actually working out, like the, the level they chose has been efficient. Um, the other thing that went on was uh, they drained a little bit of points through people paying for profile customization, although it looks like it was only about $1,500 worth, which is not a big deal. Some total, they've drained something like 60,000 points. So it was like 5.87 million points, but points are like 100 to the US dollar in theory. So something like $60,000 worth of points has been drained out. And that is certainly good progress. Um, the problem, however, is that overall trades are down month over month from September to October after boosting a little from August to September. So we went from 260,000 trades in September down to about 228,000 or something in October, which is something like a 13% uh, fall off. That's certainly cause for concern. And if it continues to fall off at that rate month after month, they're going to be in, in dire straits again. Um, I mean, how are you feeling about the platform? You've used it a significant amount as well, right, Travis? I have uh, I have mixed feelings about Puka Trade at this point. I used it for quite a bit uh, earlier on. For a while, it was my only source of acquiring cards for personal use, which is basically all I've ever used it for. I didn't use it much for speculative purposes. Um, I was picking up cards for EDH decks. And, uh, you know, it was never expedient but it was always pretty reliable and uh, now i'm kind of at this point where i've got a hundred and some odd dollars in change in points and i've got cards all the way from non-foils that cost a dollar to 150 dollar kaladesh inventions and i'm just seeing no real action at all um i think it all kind of started when puka first was experiencing its problems um, which I think were more of a PR issue necessarily than any sort of uh, systemic problem. 
Um, but it does seem like the site has slowed down considerably, although, and the new interface, but you know, which is, which is unfortunate because I think the new interface is, is pretty solid. Uh, there's room for improvement. Um, but, and overall the service is still usable. They just need people to trust it. Um, so I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that, that they can kind of salvage this and really do and do more with it because it's extremely useful for those of us who, um, you know, just want to pick up, you know, cards in that like five to twenty five dollar range for your edh decks uh, or various other decks it's very convenient for because it's just enough money that you don't really want to spend any real cash on it but um you know it gives you an opportunity to turn some of those lower and middle value cards into something you can actually make use of yeah so one of the other things they've got on the table is that they're planning on adding some filters that kind of nudge senders towards sending cards to new users and uh, experienced users that are have been sitting on points for a long time, um, and I'm not—I haven't quite wrapped my head around how that's all going to work out, and how you turn it into a productive cycle of interactions. But um, as somebody who's sitting on about $800 worth of points, that's about uh, has been stale for about a month and a half to two months. I'm certainly interested in any and all action that attempts to address that issue. Um, you know. When I first got into Trade about a year, year and a half ago, I was getting cards like um, Foreign Black Border, German Volcanic Island, um, and uh, Bazaar of Baghdad. And now I'm getting cards like Foil Stonehaven Outfitter. Um, and <laughs> what I've heard anecdotally and from some conversations with their staff is that um, a, a large volume of the trades that are going on are coming from a relatively small number of outgoing vendors who had a ton and ton of bulk sitting around and are sending out, you know, 50 cent dollar and $2 cards in large packages because people that have really broad want lists um, with lots of little stuff on them, you know, to build some casual or EDH decks or whatever are a really good way to out cards that would often not be um, profitable to sell on eBay where you know you're going to sell a dollar card and pay a dollar in postage minus fees it just doesn't make any sense but if you can pack together um a, a weird assortment of you know 150 cards and the total is like 62 dollars and 50 cents or something worth of puka points and the person that you're sending them to is giving you some kind of you know 20 or 30 percent bonus as people are prone to do these days so that they can get the cards they want um then you know, those points might be able to be turned into a single $50 card or something um, and really make it worth their time because then they can go liquid on that back at the shop. Um, mm. the, the the problem there is that um, guys like me who are willing to send out, you know, $500 or $1,000 worth of cards a month, uh, so long as I can trade up, you know, I don't really care what I get back as long as it's over $100. So if you're listening to this and you've got cards you want to turn into Puka points, um, you know, Myself and many others like me are willing to give you a bonus to, you know, turn, you know, I sent out a bunch of snow covered mountains last, last month and got a 40% bonus on those. If I can turn those into a 50, 100, $200 card, you know, uh, it, it's hard for that to go wrong as long as it happens in some kind of reasonable mid midterm timeline, you know, anything under six months is fine. Um, if I'm sitting on the points much longer than that, then I probably should have gotten rid of the cards in a local trade or something or attempted to sell them as part of a package. So uh, the platform is making strides. Um, it's not dead yet. Um, if you want it to succeed, you should participate because sitting back is not really going to get you anywhere. I'll tell you that much. Um, in terms of tips that our, our listener was probably after, um, yeah. <laughs> I, would say, I, I would say the following. Uh, the best that you can do is is cast a very wide net. Looking at Puka Trade as a way to get the four cards you're missing that you need three days later for your Friday Night Magic is crazy talk. Um, it, it it has never worked effectively to do in uh, to fulfill those kind of immediate needs, um, highly specific needs, because the platform is push based, not pull based. You don't buy it. You know, go online, find the card you want, and buy it like you would on eBay or TCG Player. You put it on a list, and people have to decide to send it to you. So, if the things that you put on a list are really high demand items, like you know a Black Lotus, um, or they are uh, you know current standard staples like Gideon that are that are good for thirty dollars, twenty five or thirty dollars cash um, in local markets, um, there's very little motivation for somebody to trade those for points instead. Yeah. Uh, so. Had, had you I would say, had you not said it, I was going to um, push for the uh, cast a wide net strategy, um, go broad with what you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, basically, my want list is now every magic card that's worth more than $50. And I'll take any of them. I don't really care which ones I get. <laughs> um, what I care about is trading up so that I can, you know, 
streamline my collection and make it more manageable for the you know five or six hours a week i have devoted to be able to you know manage my interactions with magic cards um, yeah uh, so, you know, everybody's needs are a little different, but if you don't cast that wide net and you're just sitting on seven rando EDH cards that you need, the next step you need to take is to reach out and send a message, um, to the top 10 or 20, uh, senders that are listed on Pukatrade. Um, if you haven't communicated with anybody and started some networking, then you're definitely missing out on some opportunities because, um, especially if you're not looking for you know, the same thing that everybody else is looking for. If you're looking for, you know, random dollar and $2 cards, those guys probably have them around. They just haven't noticed your want list yet. Um, and there are, you know, tens of thousands of users. So that's not a huge surprise. So you definitely need to do some networking. You need to cast a wide net and you need to participate in social media via Twitter, Facebook, um, Reddit, etc., so that you can connect with other Puka users and see if you can set up some trades. Sometimes people have the cards and they would be willing to send them to you, but they, they want to make sure that they're going to get equivalent cards back from their list um i've had that conversation with many people and for me it doesn't really work out but if for others it may work just you know perfectly fine and it fulfills kind of the original objectives of the site which was to connect traders um as opposed to vendors yeah um I, yeah yeah so i going going wide i think it's a great idea um being uh, God, they, they've changed this around a little bit, so it's a little trickier. I used to have some good strategies for how to how to send cards, but um, <laughs> I think I think the new tools have kind of erased that a little bit. Uh, I would also encourage you to check margins. Um, so if you are looking at, you know, whenever I'm looking at putting cards in my want list on Puka Trade, and I'm trying to decide whether I should add it on Puka Trade or just go buy it. I check the Puka point value and the cost of the card in real dollars, and I see kind of how far apart they are. Now, they're never going to be the same, um, but you will find that some cards, uh, the Puka value is um, essentially, essentially you're getting a discount if you buy it with Puka points, or you're, you're paying not as much as you would expect to in points, and other times you're paying a huge, way more points for it than you would uh, expect to, or it costs way more points than you would expect to. So if you keep an eye on that, you can kind of make sure that the cards you're picking up are cards that Puka Trade hasn't quite uh, valued highly enough yet. Um, and uh, you can try and only pick up cards that um, have have a good margin in your favor. Now, because the site's been pretty slow lately, I don't think you can be too choosy. Um, but it is worth considering, um, you know, if the traffic ever picks up, that you can do that. And that works when you're sending as well. You can avoid sending cards that would sell um, very well in TCG player, but if you find something that, um, you know, isn't moving it, that you can't sell locally or you haven't been able to sell and, um, you know, the numbers work in your favor, you can send on, on Puka, on Puka trade for, for way more points than you would kind of expect to based on what the cash value of the card is. Yep. That makes sense. Um, one of the things that uh, I would also recommend is that if somebody sends you something that has spiked, feel free to politely ask them to not not do so if they haven't already reported that they've shipped it. I yeah. have, I have, I, I am as eager as anybody to to push into a spike. But if somebody asks me, I will I will typically just say, okay, no problem, and cancel it. Not a big deal because I expect the same in return, and people have done it for me. So you know, give and give alike, and and everybody will do a little better. Yep. I, uh, I actually just had to ask somebody to cancel something recently. It went no problem. Um, I do it the same for everybody else. Uh, so yeah, definitely don't be, don't be a jerk about that, but don't be afraid to ask as well. Yeah. The other thing is that the, the Puka trade admins are pretty good people. And if say somebody sent you a hundred dollar card that is clearly worth only 60 or 70 and Puka just had the value wrong, they will probably correct that value for you without you having to cancel the trade. So never hurts to, to, uh, ping uh, customer service and see what they may or may not do for a situation you find yourself in. Oh, I was also going to say that I, I generally try and ship cards that are in the like 15 to $20 range is ideal. 10 to $20 is okay. Um, 
because it's in that range, that $15 to $20 range that you're getting the best value for shipping the card. And what I mean by that is if you go too far over $20, you have to start, you should start sending with uh, tracking, which means that you're paying like $260 or something to put the card in the mail. So that really chews into your, uh, your trade equity. Um, but if you are sending like a $3 card and a stamp is 50 cents, well, that's also a huge value of the trade is just a stamp. So if you get in that 15 to $20 range, you're, uh, the shipping costs, your overhead are um, the smallest percentage of the trade value as you're going to find. Yep, fair enough. And I, and I guess that picks back up after you get over cards that are like 60 or $70, but that's probably not happening very often. Yeah. All right. So uh, that should be uh, a wrap for this week. Where can people find you online, Travis? Oh, God. Uh, I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write Mondays on MTG Price. I do Cartel Aristocrat webcasts. I don't know. That's three places that should work. All that stuff. And uh, yeah. you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my uh, weekly articles Wednesdays now on MTGPrice.com. Um, I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 42. We are getting close to a year. Um, And uh, I enjoyed our conversation tonight, James. So I'll see you next week. Thanks, Travis. And we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm